What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hi there, this is Joan Van Ark, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you this week's edition of TV Confidential, radio talk show about television, and we'll welcome back Joseph Doherty in our second hour. Joseph Doherty, the Emmy Award-winning writer, director, and producer of 30-something, Saving Grace, Pretty Little Liars, and other film and TV projects. Joseph Doherty is also the author of a brand-new breakout science fiction novel called The First Cylinder that draws inspiration from the famous invasion of Earth by Martians that H.G. Wells depicted in his classic novel, War of the Worlds, only Joe tells the story from the perspective of the Martians. We'll talk to Joe about that and a whole lot more when Joseph Doherty joins us in our second hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we will begin our first hour by playing part two of a conversation that began last week with Jim Benson. Jim Benson, co-author along with Scott Skelton, of Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour. Everything you wanted to know and more about the other famous classic TV series created by Rod Serling. Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, 50th Anniversary Retrospective, available now, CreatureFeatures.com, NightGallery.net. Jim, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're talking about how Night Gallery was very much a director show in that it often provided a platform for many new and up-and-coming directors such as Steven Spielberg, such as John Badham and Gino Swork, as well as many actors who went on to become directors such as John Aston. We also mentioned how you and Scott took advantage of the opportunity to revise the After Hours Tour as part of your second edition to update and, in some cases, correct some details about the series that were either not known to you or not readily available to you at the time you originally published the book in 1998. So with that all said, as we pick up our conversation... John Aston was one of the many actors who made his directorial debut as a result of Night Gallery. Leonard Nimoy was another actor who, who first became a director as a result of Night Gallery. Yes, this was another thing that we discovered <laughs> that, that uh, we didn't realize the first go around. It turns out that Nimoy had just left Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. And he had greater artistic aspirations, not only uh, for the theater but also um, exploring different dimensions of his career in television and, and eventually movies, which, which we discovered. Mm-hmm. And Nimoy ended up um, signing a one-year contract with, with Universal that would allow him to not only guest star in uh, certain Universal shows, but would also allow him to write and direct Universal shows. The series that that really uh, attracted Nimoy, and uh, he had a natural gravitational pull toward it because it was fantasy science fiction, uh, having been Mr. Spock in Star Trek, Mm -hmm. uh, he was naturally attracted to Night Gallery. And 
that was his directorial debut of, of anything, at, at least, you know, in television or movies. Um, and uh, he ended up uh, casting Leslie Ann Warren, who had also recently left Mission Impossible. They had worked together for, you know, at least a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a natural transition for him to be working with Leslie Ann Warren, uh, both of whom remember every detail of, <laughs> of, uh, of uh, you know, working on the third season episode, Death on a Barge, where Leslie Ann Warren plays a very seductive female, of course, a vampire. Uh, and um, and it, it, it really had a, a, a great impact on, uh, on both of their careers. Um, it, uh, it certainly showed a, a greater range for Leslie Ann Warren, uh, and it showed that, that Leonard Nimoy was a very accomplished director. And he was going to direct another episode of Night Gallery for the third season, but the show was canceled in mid-season, so he never got the opportunity. And it, it turns out that he was lucky because it was going to be the final episode of Night Gallery, Hatred Unto Death, which is one of the worst episodes <laughs> of, of any TV show that has ever been broadcast in the last 70 years. Hands down. <laughs> so he lucked out on that one. He lucked but, out... But the, but the other thing is, we, we learned he had written several scripts for Night Gallery for the third season that were never produced. And uh, we don't know where those are right now, if they even still exist, but we would love to see them. In the meantime, if you want to enjoy the benefit of Leonard Nimoy's uh, immaculate uh, recollections, along with... Uh, the recollections of Leslie Ann Warren, John Aston, many of the other people that Jim and Scott talked to. Uh, you want to pick up a copy of Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, revised second edition, e even more comprehensive than the first edition, which is a pretty mean feat. 800 pages about one of the most interesting, fascinating shows in television history. Night Gallery, After Hours Tour, 50th Anniversary Retrospective, available exclusively nightgallery.net or creaturefeatures.com. We mentioned, uh, this is a tease, Jim. You know this because you're a radio fellow like me. Uh, we mentioned that uh, Steven Spielberg directed the pilot of Night Gallery. That was not the only contribution he made to that show. There's a very interesting story regarding the episode Make Me Laugh with Godfrey Cambridge, but to find out what that is about, you got to pick up a copy of the book. Yes. It was a director's show, as you mentioned. Night Gallery is very much a director's show. It was also a producer's show, I understand, because, and, and, yes. and, uh, because it was coming out of Universal at a time when the concept of television becoming a producer's medium was really, really coming to fore. It was the era of Roy Huggins. It was the, it was the beginning of the era of Stephen Jay Cannell as a rock star type of producer, and uh, Aaron Spelling as well, and Aaron Spelling, uh, Jack Webb, uh, and and Jack Laird was sort of groomed in that tradition as he was coming into his own as a producer at Universal, and in many respects, I understand that was part of the tension between Jack Laird and Rod Serling. Right, and this is and this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> There, there are a lot of moving parts, and, and th this part of the story is, is where there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misconception and a lot of myths. 
Uh, and you know, it's it's one of those situations when when you have uh, you know a group of people, two or three people, uh, and they all have vested interests in the in the same property, uh, and they have different you know creative visions for what they want to do for a particular TV show. It's not unusual that people butt heads when I mean I mean it's, it basically it, it's it's the typical struggle for power, and uh, you know let's see who's going to be on top. And and Rod Serling he didn't intend this, but he set this up for things to ultimately go sour. The the way he originally handled um, his contract and uh, and his demands which were not ultimately advantageous to him when it came to um, maintaining creative control. Uh, and he, he made the, the worst possible mistake. He assumed that certain things would happen that ultimately didn't happen. He yeah. assumed that uh, because he was the creator of the show and because of his fame and because of his Twilight Zone pedigree, that people would def uh, naturally defer to him and their respect for him would allow him into the creative process, even though it wasn't written in the contract. Yeah. That was a fatal, fatal error on his part. Yes, as we learn from Felix Unger and the Odd Couple, when you assume... Yeah, you, you... <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, Hollywood is all about leverage. Mm -hmm. And going in, he he himself took away his own leverage, and uh, and basically opened the door for a powerful computer producer like Jack Laird. Now he might have lucked out if William Sackheim, who produced the pilot, had become the producer of the series. But William Sackheim didn't want any part of it because he was burned out. He knew how hard it was to be a showrunner. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he declined. That opened the door for Jack Baird to come in, and that's when the confrontation and the tensions began. And again, Serling set himself up by not demanding creative control and not demanding to be the lead producer on Night Gallery because he had burned himself out so much on the Twilight Zone, and also the Loner, which uh, he was, you know, butting heads with uh, the CBS executives, mm -hmm. and and it was it was a struggle and a stress, and it was a bad experience, and you know he ultimately left that show in a very similar way that uh, he left Night Gallery. Jim Benson is on the line with us. Jim Benson, co-author along with Scott Skelton of Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, 50th anniversary retrospective that brings you everything you wanted to know about the other classic TV series created by Rod Serling, including anecdotes from such film and TV luminaries as Leonard Nimoy, John Astin, Sidney Pollack, Roddy McDowell, Larry Hagman, Nehemiah Persov, Richard Kiley, Leslie Nielsen, many, many others, plus more than 100 Photographs, many of which have never been published before, including full-color photographs of all of the paintings 
uh, by Tom Wright that introduced each segment of Night Gallery. A brand new forward by Guillermo del Toro, plus a whole lot more. Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, revised second edition, 50th anniversary retrospective, available right now, creaturefeatures.com, nightgallery.net. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing, and if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and Moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U, beauty.com, or at Ibu Beauty on Instagram. Use customer code Ibu50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. Jim Benson and Scott Skelton also produced all the bonus features of the Night Gallery Season 3 DVD package. Not only that, Jim and Scott basically reconstructed an episode of the second season that allows all four segments of that episode to be shown as they were originally intended as opposed to how they appeared in syndication. All three seasons of Night Gallery are available at nightgallery.net. That's as good a way to set up one of our next topics. Uh, Some of the misconceptions about Night Gallery, one of which is that while he was not the producer of the show, some people think Rod Serling had nothing to do with the show. That's a misnomer. Correct. Uh, He was mainly, for the most part, uh, even though he did have a couple of minor dust-ups with Jack Blair during the first season of Night Gallery, uh, for the most part, that was Rod Serling's show Mm -hmm. in the first season of Night Gallery. Paul Freeman, uh, who was referred to as the uh, uh, executive, I forgot the exact uh, term for it, but uh, he was a production executive, uh, and uh, and he shared producer duties with uh, Jack Laird. But Jack Laird was also, you know, busy producing other shows, uh, including, you know, he had a hand in uh, the psychiatrist. And, um, you know, he, so he was, he was juggling on a lot of different things, so he couldn't put his 100% focus on Night Gallery. So that, that allowed Paul Freeman and uh, Rod Serling to exert a little more uh, creative control over the show. And th- there was one, one instance in particular where Jack Laird changed the beginning and the end of a little black bag in the first season and Serling objected and wrote him a letter to that effect and Jack Laird backed down. Jack Laird probably would not have backed down in the second season and certainly not in the third. So, so again, you just you, you address two uh, misconceptions in that uh, not only he was actively involved to an extent and it's not like he was a total pushover and he also wrote almost one-third of the entire series. Yes. Yes, he did. And, uh, and he actually w- would have written more uh, had, uh, you know, NBC not changed the format of the third season. Uh, he, he wrote a lot of scripts for the third season that weren't produced because NBC had, had changed the tone and the format of the show. Uh, and, and the other scripts that were uh, left unproduced were because the show was canceled in mid-season and didn't fulfill its 22-episode commitment. The third season, among other things, it had a it it had what it had a terrible time slot. It it was not exactly the Don Rickles show, which was uh, uh, sent to 10:30 p.m. on Friday night, 
but uh, uh, but it was it was ten o'clock on Sunday nights at a time when um, I think the broadcast schedule was still seven thirty to ten thirty on on Sunday night. You'll correct me on that, Jim. But the, my my point being, you, you have a show starting at ten o'clock and it's going up against either the tail end of the ABC Sunday night movie or whatever was on uh, CBS that had started at 9.30. And so the odds of someone tuning out of what they're watching on the other networks to tune in Night Gallery are slim unless their TV is already dialed to NBC. Right. The fact that NBC moved the Wednesday mystery movie featuring uh, McMillan and Wife, McLeod, and Columbo uh, over to Sundays for its second season and then brought Night Gallery over for its third season as sort of tagging along at the very end of the mystery movie uh, was a disaster for Night Gallery on so many different levels. One of, one of which, the, the thing that drove Night Gallery ratings was the fact that so many young people, school-aged young people, watched the show mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, encouraged their families to, to tolerate you know, <laughs> this, this horror series because, you know, I think most parents wanted to watch a, a more mainstream show like Mannix. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the kids, you know, were insisting, we got to watch Night Gallery, we got we to watch Night Gallery, and so the parents said, okay... You know, and um, and so and Night Gallery was an hour, uh, so it aired from 10 to 11 p.m., which segued very well into the evening news, mm-hmm. and it was the type of structure that, to this day, viewers are used to. Mm-hmm. So any deviation from that, uh, and people are creatures of habit, and that's what networks depend on, but if you change the dynamics of that habit people are going to seek alternatives uh, that, that reinforce the habits that they've developed over the years. Uh, so one of the habits is, oh, uh, let's watch a show that's an hour show, like Mannix. Let's watch the ABC uh, movie of the week, which is two, two hours, sometimes three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more traditional. Watching Night Gallery at 10 o'clock, it's now been reduced to half an hour, it ends at 10.30, uh, you know, where the local news starts, which is sort of an odd thing, unless you want to go to bed early that night, I guess that's a good thing, Uh, but also the kids are not up on Sunday night, uh, because the, the next night is a school night, and uh, it's different when it's Wednesday, but, you know, Sunday, it's, it's the beginning of, of the school week. And, um, and so the kids were forced to go to bed earlier and weren't allowed to watch their favorite show. So, so the ratings plummeted. Not only that, but um, at the time, uh, the networks were, uh, a, a, an uh, FCC edict came down that the networks had to sacrifice more hours to local stations starting in that season. Mm-hmm. And so they had to sacrifice a lot of their hours during different days of the week. And they were specifically uh, uh, forced by the government to give up an hour on Sunday, 
which is, you know, the biggest ratings night of the week. Mm-hmm. And they reluctantly did that. Uh, but the way they, they had to be very creative to, you know, cut down uh, certain shows in order to give them, you know, the, the hours that they would need for the new schedules that they had created. And so they, you know, they didn't have, well, they did have a problem with Night Gallery because Night Gallery, they were not happy with the multi-segment hour-long show. Uh, it was very expensive because, you know, you basically had two, three, four different sh- stories during the hour. You had two, three, four different sets. You had different sets of directors and writers. All of that, it was extremely expensive, and uh, it was also chaotic, and uh, the networks didn't like chaos. They didn't like, you know, the iconoclast nature of Night Gallery. They wanted it to be more mainstream and in a format that they understood. So uh, because of these edicts, they, they cut down shows to half an hour that shouldn't have been cut down. One of them was the D.A., with Robert with Conrad. Robert Conrad, right. Right. That, sh- that originally was supposed to be an hour show. And, of course, Night Gallery uh, suffered greatly because in half an hour it was only able to, to air one episode. And uh, so both shows were canceled that year, and it's because of their running time. Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, revised second edition, 50th anniversary retrospective by Scott Skelton and Jim Benson. Jim Benson is our guest this hour. Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, available now, CreatureFeatures.com, NightGallery.net. We'll talk some more with Jim after this quick timeout here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.